Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Divisiveness. It's in our politics, our society, and we're beginning to see it permeate the culture of our fire service and threaten the one thing that has held us together since the early 1800s, when private fire company competition came to an end and public fire departments were established for the greater good. The significance of family. There are many careers and companies where there is a traceable bloodline, but it has always seemed to be especially poignant in our military and emergency services. But regardless of blood relation, there is a bond that should be shared between firefighters that is greater than the sum of us as individuals. We don't have to all get along or even like each other. That's part of family too. But there should be a higher calling of respect. We need to be able to recognize the difference between disagreement and divisiveness. The former is healthy and the latter is destructive. Whether you are first generation or second like myself, or you can trace your fire history all the way back to Rome. Seeing yourself as part of a family and community will guide you through the dark moments and elevate the good. Recording with my guest for this episode was important for me on numerous levels. I knew it would be interesting for you to hear his journey, the stories from the backstep and the firehouses of old. We talk about the brotherhoods that he formed, work ethic and respect, the pumper accident that almost took the lives of his crew and how it changed the course of his career, the fire he'll never forget, and eating groundhog. But selfishly, I also wanted this for me, for him for our family, and for my two girls. I wanted to capture us connecting through our shared love and appreciation for our calling. I'm so grateful this happened, and I'm proud to introduce you to my dad. Hey, Dad. Yeah, how are you? Good. (laughs) (laughs) Another morning. Another morning, yeah. Our uh, second attempt, actually, because we tried before, and we did a full two hours, and I was pretty excited about it. Mm. I think we both really enjoyed it. Oh, and well. then we walked out and realized we had a computer error and it only caught 10 minutes of two hours. Mm. Oh, well, that's life. <laughs> it is, isn't it? You adapt and overcome. <laughs> that's right, yeah. So in the intro, uh, I'm going to talk a- quite a bit about family mm-hmm. and the family of the fire service, which is one of the main topics that we try and touch on right. on the podcast. Yep. So why don't we start there? Why don't you talk to me about your upbringing, because mm-hmm. it was different than mine. Yep. And... Uh, about your family, where you grew up, where you spent time with them. How did that, uh, that all okay. happen for you? Okay, that sounds good. Uh, as you said, I grew up different, quite different than uh, the life you had with our, with mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, <clears throat> I was adopted when I was very, very young. Uh, I was only, I think, six months old or a year old when I was uh, put into a foster home. My mother had trouble uh, hard times and trouble raising us so she gave us to the to the uh, children's aid society and uh, so I was put in a a home and I was there for about a year and then I was moved into another home uh, about three years later and uh, that's the family that I grew up to know Uh, the hard part that I found was I didn't have my own mom and dad and I had foster parents, but yet they treated me just like their own uh, son. And uh, uh, I had uh, I, was, I was moved into a, a house that had uh, five girls in, and uh, they were all adopted by my uh, adopted parents. And uh, we had quite a good family, really. We had a good time, and uh, uh, it was very a very strict, regimented home. Uh, We were uh, (coughs) religion, education, respect, and discipline was the big things. And not like today, because today is totally different. And uh, even though 
Um, I grew up that way. I mean, you were raised a little bit different than that. It wasn't quite as strict as what uh, it was when I grew up. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the world today is totally different. There's none of that now. Respect is it's hard to find. Uh, education was the big thing, and uh, we were made to do homework every night. We had, in the summertime, we had an hour schooling during summer holidays every day from 1 o'clock till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we all sat down and got ready for the next uh, school year. Mm-hmm. But life was good. Uh, we grew up in the east end of Toronto, and then later on, my dad, he built a house in, uh, in out, later out in Scarborough at Stop 22 in the Kingston Road, and uh, it was a real nice house there, and, uh, and then he had uh, a heart attack, and we moved back into the beaches area of Toronto. That's where I had most of my teenage years was in the beaches. The one thing uh, that I did find out later on that I was told I was an orphan, and so, you know, an orphan doesn't have anybody. Later on in life, it, uh, life turned uh, a real surprise on me when I found out I had five birth sisters. Right. So before you leave uh, your <clears throat> initial family yeah. that you grew up with, yeah. I think that ties in well with the fire service and the fact that we, we all talk about the fact that we're family in the fire service. That's right. Um, and that uh, the idea that... Being blood-related doesn't necessarily mean family. No, that's right. It doesn't no, have yeah. to be. That's um, right. And I think that mentality was echoed in my upbringing uh, with mom being an only child. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Uh, she's always said over the years how uh, she got to choose her sisters. Mm-hmm. And then obviously their husbands and their kids. I mean, so we just grew up with them being our aunts and uncles and cousins. That's right. Extended family. Right. So I've always had this <clears throat> broad perspective on just people and the people you choose to love in your life and how everybody can be family. It's a choice, not necessarily a biological uh, connection. That's right. Yeah. And uh, it was, it's a good life. I I had a very good uh, life with the family that I was adopted to. And uh, mom and dad were very strict. Uh, Mom was the disciplinarian. My dad, uh, he sort of sat in the background and, uh, if uh, you ask something of dad, he'd say, go ask your mother, hmm. and she'll tell you whether it's right or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and all your sisters were older. That's right. They you were, were the youngest. Me. I was the youngest one. Right. The oldest one uh, was, she ended up marrying a, a minister. He was a minister up in Wingham, Ontario for, I think, about 14 years, and and we used to go up there. I used to go up there for a couple of weeks every summer. We had many good times together. The hardest part was uh, later on in life, Dad had bought a cottage down to Francis Bay. And uh, on Sunday afternoon, uh, when all the kids all across the road in the park were having a great time, we were sitting on a blanket on the front lawn playing di- di- tiddlywinks. Right. Uh, because we weren't allowed to do stuff on Sunday like the rest of the, the you know people did across in the park. Right, so you were in church uh, multiple times. Three, ta- three times on Sunday, there was the morning, and then the afternoon, the Salvation Army, and then at night, back to church. Mother used to drag us out the odd time when she did visitation for the departments in the Sunday school, which she had. And so it was strictly a very religious home, And uh, but we grew up with it. You didn't dare say no. Mm-hmm. 
until we became teenagers, and then life changed a little bit. Did the girls dote on you? Did they protect you? Oh, they protected me. I was, you know, uh, I had one sister went to the same school as I did. Uh, she was about four years older than me. But uh, if I had problems at school, she stepped in, and uh, that was the end of it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, but then again, that's that's the way life was in those days, you know. Right, uh, so fast forward for me now to um, how old you were when you decided to start digging into your biological family tree. Okay, I was, it was 1987, so that was 40 years old, because I was born in 1937. I sort of kept wondering, you know, well, you look in the mirror and you say, well, who do you look like? I mean, uh, you and your and your sister, they look very much, you look very much alike. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know, and uh, now your sister, Colleen, and her daughter, they're like twins, you know, two peas in a pod. Right. So you look in the mirror and uh, there's got to be somebody. So anyways, I rode away for some medical information to find out just, you know, what could happen down the road or whatever. And... Uh, I got a letter back from a lady at the Children's Aid Society, and she wrote quite an extensive letter, and she told me all about my health uh, record and so on. And, and then she said, oh, by the way, you had five siblings. Five siblings? Pardon me? Yes, five siblings. Wow, that's great. Now where do you find them? That's a big world. That's how it started. And I started going to meetings in Toronto, uh, a group by the name of Carr, I still got information from them on how to do this and how to do that. So finally, I wrote a letter to a lady out in BC who had quite a lot of information uh, on uh, families that had been uh, separated or, you know, uh, put into uh, foster homes, whatever. And I got a letter back, and uh, she said, yeah, she said, I got two ladies that are looking for a sister born in, on May the 4th, 1937. So I wrote back to her, and I said, well, I said, uh, uh, your information uh, about the two girls is incorrect, because I said, I'm a male and born in 1937. So anyway, she wrote back, and she said, yeah, she said, um, one lives in Oshawa, and the other one lives in Pickering. And so she said, uh, she wrote to them and uh, told them the information. So uh, she came back and she said, they'd like to meet you. So it was Mother's Day in uh, 1988, I think it was. And luckily uh, they were pretty close for a big world. They were because they had, wor they had worked in a plaza, one at one end and one at the other. And they just still didn't know they were sisters. Wow. But at that, but later on they found out they were. And so, anyways, it was Mother's Day, and I talked to your mom, and she said go. She said go and meet them. So I did. I went down and met Sandy and uh, Betty Jean down in uh, Oshawa. And as soon as they walked up the door and the door opened, I knew who I was because my one sister was a spitting image of me, the poor girl. But that's the way it was. <laughs> For sure. But I knew right well that was my sister. So then I'd, I spent the whole day with them, and it wasn't a very good Mother's Day for your mom, but uh, anyway, she was quite happy that I met them. And so uh, <clears throat> I came home, and from then I went on uh, looking further, and uh, I got a letter from uh, a lady, and she said uh, it was all non-identifying information. She told me who she was, like not so much uh, personal-wise, but you know that she was uh, 
adopted by a family and so on and so forth. And so I wrote back a letter to her and I said, well, you know, I'm pleased that you wrote me a letter. But I said, um, you know, I told her a bit about myself and I said, I, at presently, I said, I'm with a, a fire department in, the, in Ontario. I guess about a month later, I got a call one night, or actually the fire department got a call, and uh, this fella on the phone said, I'm looking for a Gordon Frederick Hewlett, and uh, do you, And apparently he worked for a fire department. Is he on your department? And uh, the girl on the board said, no. Uh, she said, I'll get a hold of the district chief to see if I can give you any information. So he, she got a hold of him and uh, told her, yes, go ahead. So uh, she came back and... He said, well, he said, uh, yeah, he said, I've been looking for him. And uh, he said, uh, apparently, his wife said later, she said, when he, she got the information, he says, wow, I got him. And apparently, he'd spent all day phoning every fire department in Ontario trying to locate me. And Brampton Fire Department was the last department he was going to call for the night, and that was at 9 o'clock. And so fortunately, he was quite happy, and, uh, and I was quite happy too. But I found out later that my sister's husband, he was a, a chiropractor, and he did this on the side for a hobby, trying to locate people that were separated from families and trying to get them together and so on. This is how we all got together. It ended up in a, a conference call between me, my sister, uh, Sharon, and my other sister in London, England. And how the one in London, England he found was that in his chiropractic business, he had a lady working for him, and she was from over that area in England, and uh, she was going over for a holiday to see her brother. And her brother worked for Scotland Yard. He said, would you do me a favor? Would you look up a, a lady in England and see if this is... Gord's sister and so anyway she went across and inside of four hours being in London England she found my sister amazing and I believe that's because her husband was in Scotland Yard also he was a Freemason and my brother-in-law Daphne's husband he was a Freemason so the two clicked and that was how we find the last one so you know <laughs> so now we know <laughs> but it was quite it was quite a process and uh it was, you know, to me, I felt good about it. And uh, I went into it with the idea that, okay, if I find them and they want to keep up a relationship, that's fine. We'll do it. If they don't, that's fine. At least I know who they are. I've met them, and that's fine. So the end result was uh, the five biological sisters you found hmm. are all younger than you. That's right. So you're the middle boy and ten girls. Yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, it, it was quite different, you know, it was quite a thing because, uh, you know, they were looking and uh, one of them, they didn't even, uh, she didn't even know that she was adopted and she found out when her mother passed away and it was quite a shock to her. And it's been quite a shock and her and I have never been able to maintain a, a proper relationship, but I did meet her and that was fine. It was quite a different uh, start to life. And the thing was, Scotty, that... Uh, I always felt that I had to do better all the time. In other words, I had to prove myself because I didn't start off like a normal family, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, Well, what we know now, it's just as normal as any other family. <laughs> that's it's right. It's a different structure, but when yeah. you're growing up, it's hard to think that way. It's hard to think that way when you're five, six, seven years old. Exactly. 
And uh, then when you get into being a teenager, teenager, it's totally different too. Right. Uh, but anyways, I always felt I had to prove myself, and that's what's happened all the way through my life. So in your neighborhood growing up, did you have any exposure to the fire service at all? Well, not so much in when I lived down, like I grew up on Ashdale Avenue in the east end of Toronto, and then we moved out to Scarborough. But when I came back to the beaches, I was a teenager. I was uh, about 14 years of age. And I used to ride around on my bicycle around the whole beaches area, and I used to stop by the fire hall over on Kip and Davy and Queen Street uh, East, and just around the Woodbine area, and I used to stop into the fire service there and talk to the guys and whatnot. And that was my sort of my first incident with the fire department. I never thought any more about it, but that's the start of you know some way of thinking and so on. You know. And what was your focus in school? to pass every day or every year. <laughs> uh, no, the focus in school was to, you know, get an education. And like I said earlier, uh, we always had uh, school hour every summer at the cottage and, uh, and uh, that prepared us for the next year. But then I got into high school when I was down in the beaches area and I completed grade 10 and it was a trade school, went to Denver Technical School. So you had to make a choice there based with your guidance counselor to go academic or or trade trade right and uh, you could be go you could go commercial or, or the academic the first and then uh, the commercial or you could go to the trade and I went to the trade and uh, my dad at the time said he said you're best to try and get into the printing trade because I had taken printing uh, classes in Danford Tech so I did I went into the printing trade I got an apprenticeship and uh, worked up on Blair Street behind, beside Startman Chemist, which I don't know whether they're still there today, but there was a little shop there. And I started my apprenticeship there. I enrolled in a six-year course, apprenticeship course, with the Typographical Union uh, to do a series of uh, lessons and exams. Following my six years of apprenticeship, I would be a full-fledged journeyman a typesetter. And then I ended up, I was in the trade actually for about 12 years. Why did your dad recommend the printing trade? Like, talk to me a little bit about what he did. Well, my dad actually, he, he was a furrier for Eaton Company. He was a real good furrier, and uh, he used to make co coats for Lady Eaton. And uh, I remember him on many as a weekend, he'd bring furs home, spread them out in the dining room table, and he'd go through them all. Well, this one's a good one. No, this one's a bad one. And that's how he picked the furs to make the coats and so on. He sort of felt that, uh, I guess, whether he knew somebody or whatever, but he felt the printing trade would be a pretty good trade to get into. And it was, really. I made, you know, in those days, uh, I think the top journeyman rate at that time was six, 86 bucks a week. Well, I mean, he used, they used to run a family, get it, buy a car, do, buy a home, $86 a week. You know, I was making $24 a week when I started out. Did you have any interest of following in his footsteps and being a furrier? Was that ever a no, thing in your mind? No, no, that was no. That was no idea of following in my dad's footsteps there, you know. So after the 12 years in the printing trade, what followed on, on that? Well, I was coming around with a fellow that... Of the, uh, he was the son of the minister of the church we went to. Him and I became real good friends, almost like brothers. He was into stock cars and stuff like that, and 
He opened, started a cartridge business, and I used to help him on, um, like, Easter weekend, Christmas and stuff like that, help him deliver flowers for floral shops. So anyways, uh, he ended up uh, getting a, a, a bigger uh, contract with a uh, Motor Express terminal down in uh, uh, Etobicoke, and so he had some trucks there and whatnot, and I had a few problems in uh, around the uh, 60s era, uh, era. And so I was due for a change. So in 1965, he said to me, he said, Gordy said, uh, I'm going to sell a couple of trucks. He said, you want to buy them? I said, yeah, okay. At the time, I was going with your mother, her mother, your nana. She was the nicest lady you'd want to meet. So she was talking to me about it, and she said, well, she said, I'll help you out. So she gave me some money to, to buy the two trucks, and uh, and it was at the time when the uh, Teamsters Union went on strike. So it was an excellent time to start a business. So anyways, I worked, and I worked, and I worked, and I ended up paying her the money back in about six to eight months. Wow. And uh, so again, I had to prove that, yes, I could do this. That's how I got into it, and I ended up with, I think it was four straight jobs. I ended up with a tractor trailer at a Goodyear on Kipling Avenue. From there, I had a chance to go with Listable Transport as a broker, and I had a tractor, so I put my uh, tractor on uh, LTL uh, insurance and whatnot and uh, started hauling their trailers all around Toronto. But at one point, you had multiple trucks, did you not, and had a few other guys working? I had about three other guys working for me, and... Uh, but then I stopped one night, um, there was a couple of them I was having problems with, and I uh, sat back one night and I said, you know, why are you doing this? I mean, I was making as much money as the two of them on the, with the one truck, you know, the tractor, actually. So finally I said, hey, guys, I said, I'm going to sell a few trucks. If you guys want to buy them, fine, that's great, And because uh, I'm going back to one truck, and that's when I started going with uh, the LTL. So anyways, they ended up buying the two trucks off me, so I got my money back. Mom and I bought our first house in Malton. Second, uh, we moved up to Bramalee. It was just after Bramalee that I started to, I got a, an insight into uh, the fire department, Chinkuzi Fire Department. I was starting to do some uh, carpentry work on the side, and I was looking for a vehicle to haul my saws and stuff around. I saw an ad in the paper, and I phoned the fellow up, and he said, yeah, he's like with a station wagon. He said, uh, I'll bring it up. I'll show you. So anyways, he brought it up, and we're talking away, and I uh, looked in the back of the station wagon, and uh, there's some fire gear there. I said, are you a firefighter? He said, I'm a volunteer. He said, you want to be a volunteer? He said, we're looking for fellas. I said, yeah. I said, that sounds like a good idea. So anyways, I became a volunteer. I never did buy his wagon. <laughs> and he didn't hold it against you? No, he didn't hold it against me. No, not really. But uh, I never did buy it. But uh, that's how I became a volunteer with Chinkuzi Fire Department. Right. And then I grew up with him, again, touching back on family not necessarily being blood, his Uncle Don. Yeah, that's Uncle Don. That's and right. And then fast forward even farther, I ended up working with him. Yeah, working with him. That's right. right. <laughs> you know, small world, you right, know. Yeah. But anyways, being, uh, becoming a firefighter was uh, something I, and I really enjoyed it. In fact, uh, one night, well, we had a plectron in the, in the kitchen, and you probably remember, it was a red box sitting there, and every time the tones would go off, we'd take off. And I remember one night, it was about, I think, three or four in the morning, the tones went off, and I'm, and I'm either getting out of bed or coming back, I can't remember, but she said, you coming or going? 
I said, I'm not sure. This is the sixth call of the night. It was good. I enjoyed it. It was a bunch of good guys on the on the volunteers. Going ahead a bit, uh, January the 1st, 1974, Chinkuzi Fire Department was amalgamating with Brampton. Right, so you got on in 73 with the volleys, and then six months later, this amalgamation comes down the pipe. That's right. And how I got the notification of that was I was out uh, with a trailer around the city of Toronto. I come back to the, the terminal, and uh, the dispatcher for Listable said, oh, he said, Gord, he said, call the fire department right away. He said, the chief wants to talk to you. I said, oh, great. So anyways, I phoned, uh, I got home, I phoned the chief's office, and uh, so the secretary said, oh, she said, uh, you've uh, been hired by the Brampton, or by the uh, Chinkuzi Fire Department, and you can start on the 7th of December, if that's okay. I said, fine. I said, I have to give two weeks uh, notice anyways to because, you know, I was a broker. And so I did that. But Alan Hill, uh, the dispatcher, I always, uh, the nicest guy, and I always thanked him. I said, thanks, Al. I said, very, very much because he knew I was aiming to become a firefighter, you know. So then in uh, January 1st, 1974, they were, Chinkuzi and Brampton were amalgamating. And so I was on duty with, uh, Captain Weichel, I think it was B Platoon, I believe he was on, and a super guy, and I don't know whether you met him or not, but uh, he was a great uh, fella, and we had good uh, weekend duties with his crew. Cap, I said, uh, are they going to hire any more firefighters before they amalgamate? He said, why? He said, do you want to get on? I said, why the hell do you think I get up at 3 and 4 in the morning and run fire calls? And uh, so anyways, he said, leave it with me. So about two weeks later... That's when I got the call from the uh, the chief's office that I'd been hired in uh, December the 7th, 1973. And that was a, a real joy to me, I'll tell you. What was life around the station like? Station around the station was good. Um, the crew I was on was a shift. They were a good uh, they were a good crew. Uh, the district chief uh, at first him and I didn't get along too well and uh, and uh, I knew, I remember one morning coming in on shift, you know, you did your parade in uniform because you wore your uniform to work and you did your parade and then you were pointed to where you were going on the trucks. And so I went into the back room, the, ch- the clothes room to change and uh, all of a sudden he commanded, who's driving the pumper? I said, I am, sir. He said, why are the wheel wells dirty? I said, I don't know, I just got out. He said, never mind, you don't know. That's your first responsibility, get out there and clean the wheel wells. But I'm in uniform. So anyways, I stopped. I changed my uniform, then went out, and I checked them. And they they were dirty. The guys, the previous crew had missed them. But uh, anyways, that's how it happened. But him and I were at uh, loggerheads for quite a bit. But the trucks got washed how often? They were washed every time the truck went out. You brought it in, you washed it front to back and made sure the compartments were all, the equipment was there where it was supposed to be there, but you washed them and chamois them and you no sooner get it done and all of a sudden the tones go off again. Back out you go. But that was the way it was in those days. And you had the literal experience of the white glove. <laughs> yeah, the white glove, yeah, that's right, you know. Uh, they don't do that nowadays, but uh, that's the way he was. And, and yet, you know, he turned out not to be too bad a guy because we ended up uh, on our crew, and your mama said I, I was always out in the golf course because we would go out after a shift, we'd go out and play golf, 
And then sometimes we'd play golf before we come in on shift. We'd go up with him, and yet he was a different guy, you know. But when he was in the hall, boy, I'll tell you, look out. <clears throat> Three good officers I had. Uh, there was him. There was Charlie Martin. He was the captain. He was an old Army guy. And then there was Verrill Clark. Uh, he was a lieutenant. And he ended up being chief eventually down the road. And I ended up working for him. And you ended up working for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The crew was good. Uh, we got along well. Um, had a lot of good times. We did a lot of training. And then uh, we had quite the dart competitions uh, after, you know, everyone was done, say, 3 in the afternoon, and we were at free time until quitting, uh, unless there was a call. We had it on a couple of crews like that, but... Doing the snow in the winter was good. It's not done like it was today. We had the banjos out, and you did the parking lot, and you did the whole thing. You know, heavy slugging. But nowadays, they do it with a plow, so... What was the uh, major focus of the training? The focus on training was all the the uh, getting to know all the different equipment, doing the firefighting procedures, and doing first aid. And, and uh, we wrote an, a test or whatever every month on the ship. We wrote a test what we'd learned the month before. Uh, my first call, I, I'll never forget. I'd been on about two weeks, and uh, it was wintertime. It was snow, and it was cold. We got a call out to Maple Lodge Farms on Six Line West. And, uh, oh, it was cold. And, of course, we rode the back step. And uh, the back step, uh, you know, the cars are almost not, not 500 feet away. They're right up on your bumper. By the time we got about halfway out, now we got turned back. Well, by the time we got to the station, we were frozen stiff because we didn't have the gear that you guys were. And you also had a massive run area. Uh, we did. We went from the imaginary line below Steeles Avenue between Mississauga and Brampton to Six Line West and, and then out to Highway 50 and north to 34 Side Road. And that was a big area for one station in Chincuzzi. But then as after we amalgamated, of course, then we had Chapel Street, and then we had the volunteers at Churchville, Huttonville, the Snow Grove, and the Toronto Gore. Right, so when the amalgamation took place, they basically just disbanded your volunteer station. They disbanded ours. And then uh, brought them into the fold. That brought them into the fold. Mm-hmm. And that's when, like I say, when uh, Bramalee was disbanded, that's when I asked my question and I got hired. So uh, touch back for a minute on the uniforms. So you would drive in in your uniform. That was that was mandatory. That's right. You had line up. And then you would line up face-to-face with the person you're changing over with. Yep. And then uh, we would go from there after being appointed to what you're going to do for the day. We'd go into the change room, put on our fatigues for the like station work, and then they were on unless we went out for inspections. Then we had to put the uniform back on, the dress uniform, go out doing inspections, and that was in hot weather. It didn't matter what time it was. And if you caught a call? And if you got a call, you went to the call. You just pull your jacket and tie off and <laughs> That's right. throw your bunker gear on. That's right, throw your bunker gear or right. No, your patch coat. Right. And, <laughs> and the Tonka toy hat. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had the high boots. like sure. The, but uh, I always called the Tonka toy hats, in fact, I was at your house yet, uh, yesterday, and I was you were getting something in the truck, or, and I was looking at the helmets laying there, and I picked it up, and man, oh man, compared to mine, and you have my old one. I do. And there's quite a difference in weight and quite a difference in how it's made. Yeah, as and a kid, I always thought it was um, 
a replica of one, right? Yeah. It seemed like a glorified hard hat. Well, it was basically. It was like you see a kid wear on the street nowadays, right. you know, for dressing up for Halloween. But that's what I call it—a Tonka toy hat, because that's basically what it was. But then again, you know, we had the flaps that pulled down, but they weren't near what yours was. I was looking at yours yesterday, and man, what a far cry from what we used to wear. And then the old black patch coat, which you have in your garage, and then the high boots. And I mean, they wouldn't protect you from nothing, really, you know. But And it was strange. I was looking in the paper the other day in Pooslinch uh, uh, Township, there was a picture of all their volunteers, and they were the volunteers for 50 years, They all the different firefighters. They had identical equipment that we had in the volunteer right. picture I have. The standard of the day. Yep, that was it. How many calls were you running a day? Uh, we would maybe run two or three calls, depending on how busy it was. In grass season, you were really busy in the spring. There was a lot more grass back then. That's right, <laughs> it was. And uh, But then... Uh, the thing is that uh, you know two or three calls, but but then now we had uh, we had Chapel Street, and we and then of course either one was ran, and depending where you go, you had the volunteers showing up too. So, did guys complain about training at all, or was everyone pretty focused on it? Well, the guys weren't too bad about it. You know, it's uh, it, sometimes it seemed to get in the way, but then again, that's what you're there for. You're there to learn, and uh, you know so. But most of the guys are pretty good about it. In the yeah. backgrounds of the people you work with, or the, were they mostly tradesmen? They were mostly tradesmen, yeah. They were fellows that from, from all over the you know the block as far as trades go. And, and it seemed to be if you were a tradesman, then you would get hired, you know. Uh, so you mentioned to me that the department didn't have dispatchers. The firefighters took turns doing dispatch shifts. We didn't have the dispatchers uh, the way it is today. And uh, the firefighters... Uh, each shift, no matter with the four shifts, there was one guy assigned to be up on the board during the week of days. There was uh, somebody assigned to be on the board from uh, from time you checked in at uh, seven at night till midnight, and at midnight there was another fellow sent up from midnight through to six in the morning. Off the back of the trucks. Off, off the back of the truck, and uh, <clears throat> but that's the way the dispatching was done. Well, a lot of guys didn't like it. Uh, I didn't mind it too much. Uh, I sort of liked working on the board. We had our big uh, department uh, training manual. Training manual that uh, you, it was always there, and you could go and spend time looking through that and, and reading the information, and and then back going back to shift, and you get back into the training again, and so on. But you were running the board by yourself. In the daytime, uh, they had the district. Uh, it was captain at that time, uh, Captain Newlove. And he was there. Of course, he'd been doing that for I don't know how many years. But uh, he was there, but you were the guy that was on the board. And, of course, he would come in and help you, and he was training you on certain things and so on. And then we had an alarm panel that we had to look after as well that was hooked up to the various industry in, in uh, Brampton and then later on in, uh, in Bramley and then later on in Brampton. If one of them, uh, them come in, then uh, you would dispatch the appropriate trucks for it. And the uh, dispatching at that time was from a, a, a tray of cards. And there'd be a card for every uh, business in uh, Bramalee and what the response was, whether it was aer aerial or uh, pumper one or pumper two and aerial two. And then maybe uh, the volunteers, if they were called in, but it told you exactly what to dispatch. But you were uh, on your own overnight as well. Seven at night, whatever time we come in. Seven at night, I guess. Well, you went directly to 
uh, Bramley Place where the dispatch was. And uh, then you were there till midnight, and then the guy would come up and change, and he was there till 7 in the morning. What kind of trucks were you running on? We were running uh, Ford cab overs, uh, the Ariel and the uh, Pumper. And they um, they were good trucks, uh, not near what they are today. You know, today you got to be an engineer to run one of them pretty well. There was, uh, you know, we had hose training. We used to take and strip all the hose beds and, and reload the hose. We had the Akima load. I don't know whether you still have now. There was an Akima load that uh, was done a special way, and then you could pick it up and take it in with you and into the building along with the resuscitator, whatever it was. I'm going to have to look that up after we're done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but the Yakima load was quite the, it was quite the load to, to make, and it was all done on the floor, and then you tied it up, and then you lifted it up into the Yakima bed. And you weren't running med calls initially? Not really, not like they are today. Uh, there would be the odd, uh, you know, medical call, like a resuscitator call or, or whatever. But, but no defibrillator, you just had no, a... No, we didn't have the defibrillator. So that, just the ventilator, yeah, the, the resuscitator, so... And then did it eventually evolve into running more med calls? Was that part of uh, that was, the uh, change? That was... Uh, eventually, it was starting to become uh, quite the uh, the thing to do. I especially remember when the 911 call came in, uh, when that came to be the, the way you notified. At that uh, time, I think Brampton was running about 3,200 and some odd a year. It went over to 8,000 calls the first year. Wow. Due to 911. But in our day, you know, we had maybe two or three weeks, maybe, maybe none. Any calls stand out for you? One call in particular that really stands out for me, and I was on, well, I was on a couple of calls really that stood out. Uh, one was at the Bram Lee Center, uh, where there was a garbage fire in one of the one of the rooms, and I was a volunteer at the time, and uh, I happened to be on the, just came in on duty, and I went up with the truck, and it seemed like we wandered a all the way around the the Bram Lee City Center, and here it was just a room because it was all it was full of smoke. You couldn't see nothing, and I, of course, we were following each other, and and uh, but it was quite the call. I remember that one. But the worst one of all was the Huttonville fire, where four children lost their lives. Don Bodium and I, your uncle Don, him and I were working in his basement, uh, building a, a bar for his uh, rec room, and that was one of my first jobs that I was doing as far as carpentry went. So is this still when you're volunteering when this, <coughs> this is This is when I was volunteering. Right, right. I'm working away, and all of a sudden, about 11 o'clock that night, the tones went off, and you could tell by the dispatcher the way it must have been a serious call because it wasn't only us that was responding. It was uh, the, all the, the Huttonville, the Churchville uh, volunteers. And so Don and I, we he said, let's go, because he'd been on a lot longer than I had. And let's go. He said, we'll grab the tanker. So we grabbed the tanker and uh, headed out of Station 2 on Bramley Road. And as we were coming across Steeles, we could see the glow in the, in the, the sky. It was just fully ablaze. When we went across to where the porter tank uh, was set up, and uh, when we were going across the front of the house, I could see this beam standing out in the flames, and I never forgot it. It's a big farmhouse, right? It was an old farmhouse, and uh, but four children lost their lives, and it was pretty sad. Like it was fully involved when we got there. And you mentioned something about a well. 
There was a well at the back of the property, and apparently, from what I heard from the other firefighters that were right in there, apparently one of the volunteers almost fell into the well. It was close, but uh, didn't happen, thank goodness. There was enough problems as there was with the four children, never mind the volunteer. But your main role at the call was just shoveling water? That's what it was, Don. I, we ran, and uh, of course, at the time, I was working for myself at that time. So anyways, I stayed till I think it was around 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, somewhere around there. I had to be into, into work. And so I said to Don, I've got to go. So they put somebody else with him, and, but it was a bad one. So how did the crews, either when you were on volunteer or when you were on full-time, how did they deal with the mental impact of the job? Not the way they do it today, Scotty. You know, we <clears throat> sort of dealt with it ourselves. You know, you talk about it at the we hall talked afterwards. We talked or? about it around the table, right. but I mean, we didn't have any anybody in particular come in and say, "Look, guys, sit down. This is how you know we're going to deal with it." You know, but it was you know it was part of the job, and uh, you did what you had to do, and you dealt with it yourself. Ever have any conversations just one on one with other firefighters that happened to because you were spending time together golfing and? Well, the odd time something would come up, but. Uh, Nothing in particular that I can remember. Of course, you got to think back. It's uh, Always. <laughs> quite a ways back. Right. So you mentioned talking around the table. Uh, did you guys make meals together? We had meals together. Friday was a big meal for the shift. Uh, once uh, we were doing all the, the chores around the station, uh, and then uh, one of the fellows would go in and start you know, making dinner. Or we've had roast we've had groundhog we've had all kinds of stuff but um, yeah friday was a big day and then sunday morning you usually had a big breakfast so you mentioned the groundhog so you guys most of the stations had a garden out back yeah well we had that a you big, would take care of we had a big one for all the stations at station one in brampton and rutherford road and uh, and you know all the halls could uh, you know they worked on it they could go and help themselves or whatever uh, Bubbles, the captain at, uh, of our shift, he looked out the back window and he said, look at that groundhog sitting there eating our vegetables. And he was at the front of the, the uh, lettuce patch. And so Bubbles said, oh, that's the end of him. So anyways, we went out and we flooded him out and we got him. And so you flooded him out with the... With water. With the, gar- with with the garden, fire hose? or With the garden hose. The garden hose, okay. So you had a hose on one end and yep, washed him out. A shovel at the other. Yeah, he came out and uh, we had him. So we have him for lunch the next day, <laughs> and it was good, mind you. And uh, we'd had one later on too. A fellow brought one in, but it was very good. Some guys wouldn't eat it, but I ate it, and I thought it was all right. You know, the thing is, everybody says, "Oh, it's a dirty animal." Not really. It's an animal that eats nothing but the best. Right, that you were growing. <laughs> that we were growing. That's right, and. Bubbles didn't uh, take a liking to it too much. He, that's the end of him. He, he had some pride in his garden, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. So he, was, he was a little rough around the edges. <laughs> speaking of Bubbles, you guys uh, were involved in an accident uh, together. That's right. And, and uh, how long were you into your career at that point? Okay, it was 1978, and uh, what had happened was that I was in communications for a couple of years, which, as I said earlier, I enjoyed. It's a little bit of foreshadowing for you with communications. That's right. But and, we'll get uh, there. It was something, that, you know, everything's meant to be down the road. But I had to write an exam before I could come back, so I sat or sat down and wrote my exam. I did all, uh, you know, real good on it. 
And so then uh, back in 1978, we were going to a call at Terra Park uh, Crescent over off Main Street North. Uh, there was a bad townhouse fire. We uh, come out of the station, the lights and sirens going all the way right across up Rutherford, across Vaden. We came to uh, Kennedy Road North. The driver slowed down, and of course, I'm riding on the back with two other fellows. I was in the center with my arm in the sling. That's all I had to hang on to. And then the two guys, one each side, and we didn't know what was going on. All of a sudden, we got hit, and the truck did 180 degrees, hit two cars with the tailboard, came back around, and just as we were coming back around, we saw a yellow coat laying on the road, which was the captain. And the driver, it was the driver was over on his side, not in the driver's seat. Right, so you got hit from a car that ran the light, and the captain got ejected. He got ejected, and the, the, driver, the captain, ends up. driver went over on the captain's seat, so there was nobody driving the pumper. So after we hit the two cars, we come back, and here's Bubbles laying on the road. We started to wander up into the gas station on the southwest corner, and actually the pumper was heading back out onto Kennedy Road, when Terry got back in the seat and got control of it, all I remember was the gas pumps go by, and then we had a big bang, and we stopped. And there was a ditch between there and the apartment building south of the gas station, and we stopped. And, of course, we all got off, you know, got off the back tailboard and shaking our heads pretty well, and then we see the yellow coat again, so we go over and try and help Bubbles and whatnot. And so course, you almost ran him over when you went we back almost. I, I still don't know how we missed him, uh, Scotty. Right. And a lot of the guys said the same thing. We don't know how we ever missed him. And he was laying there in a heap. Was he unconscious? And he was unconscious. He had six broken ribs. He had cuts from glass and so on and so forth. So anyways, in the meantime, I guess Station 4 had been dispatched to the call. So they went, and I guess they sent another uh, apparatus as well. But we never did get there. We all ended up going to the hospital. But uh, yeah, it was quite a, quite a ride. I wouldn't want to do that again. Well, I sustained back injuries and, uh, of course, my right shoulder because that's all I was hanging on with. And I've had, never, you know, repercussions from that ever since. But, uh, you know, Bubbles, he, he healed pretty well. And uh, But, you know, when I, when I got back on the first call after we came back to, uh, to after the injury, uh, putting your foot on the back step was a little, uh, geez, should I or shouldn't I? You right, know? Right. But... Uh, so what was recovery like? You had uh, dislocated and herniated discs and shoulder injury. That's and right. And uh, so anyways, I had two operations uh, on my hip. Uh, well, operation per two procedures. And they tried to inject things into the where the disc was, but didn't work. And uh, then the shoulder, I had three operations on that uh, over the period of time. I had about six months off uh, first time, and I had another nine months off later on. And I just, I just couldn't do it because my back was, you know, giving me so much pain and whatnot. You right. Know? So you were off for six months initially with doing physio, and then yep. you went back to firefighting for I six went months. Went back to firefighting, and then back for about another six months, and then I ended up going back off nine for months again for physio and uh, and a, an operation. Of course, going to workman's comp, uh, they. Uh, they didn't want to believe you, and it was all in your head. They came and talked to the chief. They talked to guys on the department. And, uh, in fact, they sent me down to Toronto I, to see doctors. Uh, but the disc, uh, they, no, no, it's all in your head. So, anyways, this one day I was sent down to, uh, taken down to uh, Young Street to see a lawyer. 
with a, by another lawyer for the city. And uh, we're sitting there, and uh, she's asked me all these questions, and she uh, knocked her pen on the floor. I just sat there. I couldn't move. Oh, she said, I'm sorry, Mr. Hewlett, you got a bad back. You know, sarc very sarcastically, you know. I couldn't move. I had enough trouble walking to the interview, never mind bending over to pick up a pen. Right, so they were waiting to see if you had yeah. that just instant reaction to help. That's right, you know. But I'll get that for you. It didn't happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> After the uh, six months back to firefighting, you're off for another nine months, physio, uh, the chief decided to take you off firefighting duties. That's right, because he felt it wasn't safe for me to go in and, uh, you know, something happened in, during a fire or whatever. Because I haven't having enough problems navigating as as it was, so he took me off and uh, put me into fire prevention. So then I was in fire prevention for about a month, maybe two months, and then uh, I got a, a, a notice that uh, or a memo saying that I was going to go with uh, Captain Bill McFarland, and we were going to go in and doing fire safety training out in the community and industry and. Uh, and whatnot. Schools and schools and nursing homes and so on. So that basically, uh, not officially at that time, was the start of community relations. And uh, of course, I was still uh, taking uh, less, like uh, learning fire prevention as well. Uh, I was sent, uh, went down to a, a conference where the uh, the original uh, fire code was uh, was starting up, and we were sent down and. Uh, spent a whole day down there learning all about the fire code and so on. I guess it was a little while ago after Bill and I were together, we started at a little office up on Station 5 on, on uh, Sandalwood Parkway. From there, we went uh, out uh, doing all the fire safety training. Nursing, home, nursing homes was a big one. Industry was big. Uh, the hospital, we spent a whole week over in the hospital, maybe better, doing uh, fire safety training with all the nurses and doctors and so on. Eventually, Captain McFarland went to see the chief, and he said, can we not make a division of community relations? And uh, so the chief at the time, he uh, agreed, and that's how community re relations actually became into existence. Mm -hmm. And Billy and I, we uh, worked as partners. He was my boss, but he said to me, he said, if you work with me, I'll work with you. And he said, we'll, we'll have a good time doing it. And then we became a, a Brampton Fire Prevention Association. They had an association, and, and I was sitting on that as well as he, as he was because he was a department uh, investigator. He was a camera, like the, um, cameraman as well, yeah. photographer, and, uh, and, a fire, and an investigator. So I learned a lot from him as well. And uh, a couple of times he sent me out after a fire and said, okay, fine, you go and tell me what you find. Mm -hmm. So how was it for you mentally? Because the chief and you, it's interesting, the chief and you had to be honest about your uh, physical limitations. Right. Of whether you could actually continue to be, to safely, for you and the, for the people you helped, do That's firefighting right. duties. Yeah. So how was it mentally for you to make the shift? Because you hadn't thought about... No, I hadn't thought about it, Scotty. And uh, it was hard for me because my career ended as far as a firefighter goes. But you know, in the fire department, there's various divisions. And there's more than just firefighting. You know, you got to get to the people before you had the fire. You got to teach them the fire safety. You got to teach them what to do and what not to do. That's saving lives too. 
I became uh, disheartened because I was going out of firefighting into something else. But you know, once I got in there, I started to enjoy it. And I believe, and I think I've told you before, it was the six and a half years I spent in the community relations was probably the best six and a half years I ever had. Uh, I enjoyed it so much. But you could have had it. You could have had a very negative attitude about it, right? And just been grumpy about it and hated life. And yeah, that's right. To me, it just speaks to that you're adaptable. Yeah, you've got good work ethic. Well, there again, I had to prove myself. It was a new challenge for you. That's right. It was a new challenge. And you found a new purpose. And that's right. And the the challenge was there. Uh, we did, you know, we did so many things. We did the fire prevention week. We did uh, pr- um, uh, floats for parades. Uh, we did many, many things. And uh, Captain Bill, as I always called him when I was out with him, uh, I said he uh, he had a real foresight into how to promote fire safety throughout the community mm-hmm. and uh, him and I really work well he'd be we go to a, a, a thing to do and he start off talking and introduce me and blah 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 blah, blah and and then he'd stop and I just took over and I would continue talking I'd stop he'd take over right unscripted just that's right, right. just the way it was mm-hmm. And we work so well together. And in fact, even today, we're still the best of friends. So it seemed like there was a lot of um, free reign, a lot of support, a lot of trust. I mean, even when you just mentioned that Captain Mack went up and talked to Chief and says, hey, I've got this idea. Can I do this? And the Chief yeah. thinks about it. He's like, yeah, go ahead. Yep, like stuff like that doesn't happen these days. No, that doesn't. You know. A good idea doesn't happen a half an hour after someone no, brings it, it up. And then... You know, you guys had a lot of say in how you wanted to do your job. That's right. And uh, the thing is that, as I said, he was my boss and I worked for him, but him and I didn't work that way. We worked as partners. Right. The chief got many, many letters that, uh, you know, come back from things we had done. And he'd send them through to our office, Captain Bill, and uh, he'd put them in a binder. And there was a whole binder full of letters that had been sent back of, Things that we had done, some of them were funny, some were where they should be. And, mm-hmm. you know, we always started out, Scotty, with uh, this is a serious business. Nobody wants to hear it. And uh, you're sitting here for the next half hour or whatever it is. You know, we want you to pay attention. We know you don't want to be here, especially with the nurses and that in the hospital, because they're busy. And uh, they're taking time out of their work shift to come and listen to some two guys talk about fire safety. Well, whoopee. You know? So you're acknowledging your audience and but being honest with them. That's right. And so anyways, we would start off sort of light and maybe tell a joke or something. And we always started off to make people at ease. Mm. And then we would get serious. And then we told them, when we get serious, this is it. This right. is what we're going to tell you. This is what you're going to do. And so the biggest thing we were doing was teaching people how to use a, f- a fire extinguisher, which I always call was a first aid procedure, right. because that's all it is. Right. And it's only you only use it if it's safe to do so. You don't mm-hmm. jeopardize your own life. And this is what we used to tell them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we'd take them out, and we'd float uh, gasoline on two pans of water, start a fire, and let them put the fire, pull, aim, and squeeze the sweep. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we had a good time with them. And uh, many of the time we uh, go back into a place, especially the Peel Manor, what are you two guys doing here for today? You know, what do you want? Well, we were thinking of the nurse's station, uh, beds somewhere near the nurse's station, you know. 
that we keep an eye on you guys, make sure you work. <laughs> you know? But this is the way we operated. Right. Just and on a real, um, genuine, authentic, relationship-based Yeah, that's right. And uh, they, they enjoyed us being there. And uh, even when after we'd done maybe two or three sessions with them, they were really at ease, and they really listened. And uh, we'd tell them, you know, what to do in the case of a fire in the, in the uh, nursing home, and uh, this is what the equipment's there for, this is how it works, and... Uh, so it was it was good. So also on the lighter side, talk to me about Harry the Hydrant. Okay, the Harry the Hydrant. That was another one of uh, Captain Bill's ideas, and uh, he had seen this uh, robotic uh, fire hydrant, and uh, he thought it'd be a good idea to train the kids because we used to have fun with the kids in the school in the school class, and uh, get down on the floor with them and whatnot, you know, and and the, the kids sort of looked forward to it. So anyways, he talked to the chief about this robotic fire hydrant, and uh, the chief again went along with it. We got this uh, robotic fire hydrant, and of course, uh, Bill, he used to fly model airplanes and and did boats and stuff, so he was good with the remote. And uh, he was really good with uh, Happy Harry, and I'd be the front man, and I'd start introducing this and that and so on. And I remember one day, uh, I was introduced into a a school class, And the teacher was sitting uh, somewhere or not nearby, and all of a sudden uh, Harry turned and it squirted water, caught the teacher right in the forehead. <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> Bill said, "I guess we're going to be up in front of the chief now." But so didn't, anyway, didn't you initially have him covered up when you came in? And yeah. he's about the size of a medium size garbage can. Yeah, that's right. With the and bonnet he, down low, so it yeah. looks just like a fire hydrant. That's right. And he had a he was draped. Uh, Bill had uh, Bill's re- uh, wife Rini. She used to do uh, uh, sew- like sewing and that, so she made this beautiful cape, and we covered over with the cape. And of course, Harry would come walking in, and the cape swaying here and the swinging here went went there, and then all of a sudden, you know, he'd ask the kids, "Well, what do you think's under there?" You know, and all of a sudden, he'd bring it up, and and then, like you see, the hybrid just sitting there and. Nothing, and then all of a sudden it started talking. Right, but the and bonnet was low, and then you could yep. raise the bonnet up, That's and right. all of a sudden his eyes appear. That's right. And then Captain Mac can speak through him. He'd speak yeah. through it and right. so on. And, and uh, you interact with Harry. Yeah, we would interact, uh, you yeah. know. But it was it was fun, and the kids enjoyed it. I don't know where it is today. In fact, uh, I think it was Push Link's Fire Department oh, about a year ago. They've got one, and they said they were the first ones in Canada to have it. I said, no, no, you weren't. So I sent them. I sent them a letter, and I said we were the first ones that had it in Canada. You know, but I said good luck with it because I said it was good with us, and hopefully it's good with you. It's a great icebreaker and but the, conversation. Oh, you know, the kids just loved it. You know, See, it's serious business. You know, fighting fires, but you got to educate the people. You know, on the use of smoke alarms, detectors, whatever. You know, it was excellent, and uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. So I talked to. Uh, a little while back about foreshadowing with you doing work in calm mm-hmm. and then even the name harry harry yep. the hydrant that's a bit of a foreshadowing too yeah, so right. talk me through how you ended up transitioning again so you transitioned from firefighting into helping start up community relations which is now today fire life safety education that's right and then you transitioned again so how did that happen i was working with uh, captain mac up in the workshop we were doing a float at the time fact it was the one where you have the fire fiend and it was for the uh, the fire prevention kitchen that we had every year where we had one side was a nice uh, kitchen the other side was all burnt and charred and whatnot 
And then the fire pe- fire team was up on top, and he said, I'm one friend you don't need. Uh, we were in the workshop taking a break for a minute, and uh, the door opened, and here's the chief and the deputy. It was Chief Corps and uh, Viral Clark. I thought, oh, how come they're here? So What did we do? <laughs> <laughs> what did we do wrong, Bill? Anyways, they put their hands out and said, congratulations, Gord. Uh, you've been uh, promoted to the assistant director of communications because I had gone through the process much and all as I really didn't want to go. Uh, I enjoyed, like I said, so much of what I was doing. Captain Mack was supportive of it. He was very supportive of it, and there was a few others that were the same way. I went through the process. I did the interview with the chief, and the final question he said to me was, uh, Gordy said, do you think I could handle this job? I said, I think I can. Again, I was out to prove myself. I was quite happy when they came in. I, oh, thank you very much. You know, and Mac, he was sort of happy in a way because he had urged me to do it. And not much and all as he didn't want me to, to leave him because we had such a good team, you know. But anyways, that's how I became the assistant director of communications. And then uh, Harry uh, Newlove, uh, he was a district at that time. He was uh, getting ready to retire. And so I had 10 months to learn the procedure and the administration. I knew the the dispatching part, that was no problem, but I knew I had to pick up on the administration. And you were learning so, it from Harry. So, And I've learned from Harry. I made full scap notes after notes after notes, went through all the drawers and, and uh, the cabinets and whatnot, wrote down stuff, where stuff was and so on. And uh, then he retired. And I first day in there, I Wow, what did I do? <laughs> but anyways, it worked out well. I followed my notes, and uh, a couple times I gave him a call, and what she had told me to do, because he knew I only had 10 months to do it. I think it was about a year later, Fire Chief Clark came up. He had become Fire Chief and uh, presented me with my, my gold shield that I carried. So I was uh, Director of Communications until I retired in 1995. It was quite a job. It was a 24-hour-a-day job because I'm not the type that just leaves the office and goes home and forgets about it. But And then I had uh, all the operators I was worrying about, and some of them were good and some that weren't uh, weren't up to the snuff and weren't doing the job, and I'd have to keep on them. You know, you've got to pay attention to what's going on. They said to me, well, if you don't like the way we're doing it, you sit down and do the job. I said, I can do it, but I said, I'm not here to do that. I said, that's your job to do. Right. And uh, I verified that with the chief. I, you know, I, I said, hey, uh, this is what I'm being t- told and or asked. And I said, no, I said, that's not the way I feel. He said, you're right. He said, you're there to, to manage the the communication division that's up to them to do the job, and they better do it properly. Right. So you were brought up with a, a sense of accountability, responsibility, needing to do your job, your work ethic, That's and right. you were continuing that in a, in a All leadership role. That's right, in the leadership there role. There needs to be expectations and accountability. But, uh, you know, the thing is, like I said to him, when you come through that door, and it's a locked door because we really don't, didn't want people coming in and out. I didn't want people coming in and out because it distracts what's going on. And if you've got too many people in there and you get a call comes in and, and they're talking and whatnot, then, uh, you know, the, the dispatcher's going to be distracted from what they're supposed to do, and especially with the 911 call because the police forward the 911 call over the fire department or the ambulance, and it's up to you to take all the information from that call and 
make sure that you know what you're, you know what's expected and where you're going to send the trucks. And if you've got people in there, you can't do that. And so I ran into a few problems, but it was a 24-hour-a-day job, Scotty, and it was high stress. And uh, I know some districts went home, and they never even never even worried about it. So it oh next tomorrow's good, but no, no, not in our job because it's you know it's ongoing, and you never know when that moment is going to come. It's funny when I took it over the uh, from Harry uh, about two months later, I got a phone call from the chief. And he said, oh, uh, the secretary, she said, oh, the chief wants to see you at 8 o'clock in the morning and uh, wants to know how you're going to run communications. So I went home that night, and I, man, oh, man. So I started thinking and thinking, and I had seen things that had happened when the 10 months I was there, and I knew what I wanted to see. So I sat down, I had a page and a half of Fuscap with all these ideas ahead. So I went in the next morning, 8 o'clock, I was there in a full dress uniform. The chief said, okay, take off your hat, sit down. He said, I want to hear you're gonna, how you're going to run communications. And it's interesting because instead of coming into a job and every detail that of what your job is supposed to be is handed to you and you're just supposed to follow the, yeah. the rule of the law. That's right. His, he gave you one question, how do you want to do this job? That's right. And he listened to how you wanted to do it. So here again, got to prove myself. Anyways, I sat there, and for about an hour and a half, I went through everything. The chief and the deputy were both sitting there. Never said a word. Uh, well, that's odd. Why don't they ask me questions? So anyways, I went through right from top to, to the end of the, the full scap, and I said, uh, thank you, gentlemen. I said, uh, you got any questions? You know, three words. Cora said, go for it. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> So now I got to prove myself because I put it down on paper. And uh, so I did. Chief was happy until he retired. And then uh, Chief Clark, he took over uh, every day during the week at 7 o'clock in the morning. Him and I had a meeting and we discussed things. So expectations were always clear. Yeah, that's right. And him and I had a very good rapport. In fact, he was my mentor when I first came on the department in, on uh, A-Shift. He was a lieutenant. And uh, he was my mentor. Him and I hit it off from day one. And you're still friends today. And we're still friends. I uh, just went to his 80th birthday party the other day. There was just something between us. It was like Billy Mack and me, and it was the same with Verl and me. So we always had a meeting. Seven o'clock, I'd have coffee, he'd have coffee. We'd sit there and talk things over. Of course, during the day, I'd get things back and forth. To me, whatever the chief wanted was priority. I didn't care what it was. And I know I had a few problems with some of the districts because so I had to do finalization of all reports going to the chief besides uh, many of the other responsibilities as well. It was a lot of responsibilities because it was not only communications, it was records. And the reports were the big thing. I used to go over every report, make sure everyone was on there that was supposed to be on there, that the districts had put it on and signed it and whatnot. And I had a couple of problems with uh, one district in particular. He was upset with me, and I said, no, 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 no. I said, that report has got to be perfect before it goes to the chief. If you have some information, put it on there. I said, I don't want to have to come up back and say, hey, what about this, what about that? And I remember I went away on holidays one year, and then before I had a, an assistant, I come back, and there was about 80 reports sitting on the desk to be, to be gone over and signed. That took me quite a while besides trying to do everything else. 
but I got it done. One of the points you touched on when we talked about accountability and expectations and maybe sometimes getting pushback from people that you're managing or leading, it became pretty crystal clear because there's a lot of things that the people that you're leading may not understand that your job entails. Yep, that's right. They're just focused on their job and mm-hmm. the difficulties they're having. And as much as those need to be recognized from both sides, there's a, the other side of the relationship, which is your job and mm-hmm. what's entailed in that too. So sometimes some insight into the other person's roles and responsibilities gives you a bit of more of understanding and respect for what they're doing and why they're doing it. But it became crystal clear, I think, to you and to them what the true level of responsibility is because you were involved in an inquest. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about what happened there. Yeah, again, like I say, you're, you're on call 24 hours a day. If something happens at the communication center, well, who's the first one to call? They call you. And, of course, when I took the job over, I knew that. You know, it was like becoming a firefighter. You swear to protect life and property. And so it's the same. You swear to look after the communication center, make sure everyone's done perfect. But anyways, this one night, I'd had a busy week that week, and I was sitting at home there. I don't, I don't know where you were. You might have been in bed. I don't know. But anyways, I got a call about, I think it was 11.30 at night, and uh, one of the operators that was on, and she was a good operator too, one of the best ones I had. She said, we got a problem. I said, oh, she said, 911 called. And then they hung up, and I didn't get all the information. What it was, the call, 911 call, came from the Peel Regional Police. The operator, Peel Regional Police operator, gave the information and hung up. Didn't stay on the line. Going back a ways, I always belonged to a group called APCO, uh, Associated Public Communications Operators. And I was second vice president of that at the time. And we were involved in getting the 911 started right across Canada. We had eight like agencies right across the country. In fact, I went down to Ottawa at one time to make a presentation to the committee down there. But 911 was set up so that when the call came in, it came into the Peel Regional Police, they would transfer it over to fire or ambulance, and they would hang on the line until such time as you said, I've got the information I need. But this night it didn't happen. She was trying to get the trucks going. Hey, we got a fire going. There's a lady trapped. I got to get the trucks out there. She ended up dispatching Snowgrove and somebody else. And then uh, I guess she went back to the Peel Regional. The lady was trapped. In fact, she did end up passing away due to the fire. But it was hard on her, too, because she's there all by herself. I think after that, they started putting, had to be two operators in there at all times. When I started, and I think I've told you over the time, too, that if you get some something serious, make sure you make notes. Put it in a book somewhere that's so that down the road you can jog your memory. You maybe not remember everything, but at least you can jog your memory. And when I took over communications from Harry, from day one, I had a daytimer on my desk. I made a note of everything that went on that day, phone calls, chief's calls, whatever it was, I put it in the daytimer. At the end of the day, my page was full, and sometimes the backside of the page, too. So that served you well in this instance. I had kept precise notes of what went on every day. From the time that call came in, the first thing I did was I said, take that tape off the tape recorder and hold it, put it aside, and put a note on it. And from there, it, it just went on and on, and I get OPP calling, I get investigators calling, and chief calling, and so on. How long did the inquest go on for? 
we were there for two days. Unfortunately, uh, I had had another operation on my right shoulder because it was really bad. I just got to the hospital the day before. I guess I should have called in and said, no, I'm sick. But no, I thought, well, it's important. I better go. I better. Well, it's a pretty official legal proceeding. It's, it's a le- official legal proceeding. So anyways, I went to that the first day. And I must say the first day was terrible because, number one, my shoulder had an infection in it. It was bleeding. And I was taking pain pills. But I told the... Uh, chairman of the inquest i said sir i said i'll try and do what i can but you know i just got out of the hospital and i'm not feeling the best so the first day wasn't that great as far as i'm concerned and i was sort of disappointed but what could i do anyways the second day on the stand again i before i started i said mr chairman i said i have to apologize for yesterday i said i wasn't feeling good I said, did you know, I said, I just got out of the hospital and the shoulder operation, and I said I was on painkillers and so on. So anyways, I said, I hope that today will go better. And actually, it did go better. You stood up and took ownership and responsibility for how you were feeling. That's and right, yeah. we were honest about it. Well, I was honest about it. I mean, you know, that's the way it was. You know, I couldn't help it. So that day went pretty good. But at the end of the day, Mr. Hewlett, he said, uh, I want to see your day timer. So anyways, I did come in the next day. I wasn't on the stand, but I came in the next day, and I brought my day timer. In fact, I photocopied all the pages that were requiring to that incident. And I said, okay, Mr. Chairman, here's my day timer. Here's copies for you. That's fine, Mr. Hill. That was it. If I hadn't done any of that, do you think my memory would have remembered all that? But this way, the legal proceeding was able to be done in a truthful and just and, way. And that's right. And it was heartbreaking. Not only do you have this uh, professional sense of feeling bad about what happened and wanting to get to the core of what actually did occur, and if it was on your end, to correct it, yep. but you also probably had a deep emotional, personal impact as well. I think that comes along with being the head of a group, and whatever your part of it was, you take a, an ownership for it, right? That's right. It comes with the job. You're responsible for that division, no matter what happens, regardless, and it's up to you to correct it and uh, take ownership for it, because every second counts, as you well know. And you've always been very interested in the well-being of the community that you lived in. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk to me about how you got involved in local politics. Uh, okay, that was interesting, too, because... We had moved from uh, Bramley up to Orangeville, and uh, we got the papers every day and reading stuff. And it was a small town. It was only 13,500 when we moved there in uh, 77. For some reason or other, I started writing letters. I took exception to what something was said at council. So then I started uh, writing letters to both papers of the editor on things I didn't like about council and said to your mom, I'm going to start going to council meetings. So I went to council meetings every Monday night for two years. And I know mom wasn't too happy about it. So finally your mom said, well, you're not paid for writing letters. You might as well go to council and run for council. So I did. And on my first chance to run, I got in. I enjoyed it. And I come home many nights frustrated as well because things didn't go the way you wanted or didn't expect. Your main goal was just always be involved and step up and do what was right, regardless of whether it was difficult or not. I had eight good years of it. I think you've got my uh, scrapbooks. Scrapbooks, yeah. (laughs) Still. I do. Because I made scrapbooks of it, mainly for the grandkids. Say, oh, the papa, oh, he was a real disturber. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but no, it turned out well, and uh, I enjoyed it. You know, it is said that if you don't vote, you can't complain, but if you want to see change, then get involved, and that ties into the fire service as well. If all you ever do is offer problems, and you're not willing to step up and offer solutions, yeah. and then beyond that, even champion yeah. the solutions and see them through to the end, then maybe you should keep it to yourself. So reflecting on all this, do you have any advice for people that are starting out in their careers, want to get into the service, people that are currently in the service, people that are thinking about helping their community? Do you have any advice for people like that? Well, as far as the fire service goes, it was the greatest career anybody could have. And my biggest hour of the whole thing was when my son became a second generation firefighter. That was, to me, was all heaven because I'm proud of you. I always have been. And I know since you've been on, you've done a lot of great things as well. Uh, it's hard to get on now. Like I was a volunteer. I know you had grade 10 education, but it got me where I was. But today they want so much. They want education. They want all these courses. Today to get that profession, it costs a lot of money, a lot of dedication, and the will to prove that you're able to do the job. And then as far as anybody else in the community, uh, get into council. If you don't like what's going on in the community, then put your name forward. I never back down. I don't think anybody that's getting into community work like that should go in with the idea, well, the way the water's flowing, maybe I'll go this way or I'll go that way. No, no, you got to take a stand. That's the trouble today. I don't think there's a lot of politicians that do take a stand. In fact, municipal now, it's about the only place that a councillor can speak his mind. You can't do it in provincial and you can't do it in federal because it's a block group. You know, you go as a body, not as a single individual. But you get a lot of joy out of it. I did, although mom wasn't happy at the time. Well, it's a lot of delayed gratification. I think. It is, right. Getting onto the fire service and getting the job, and that's a lot of delayed gratification. And yeah. even doing work like that and making change either in the fire service or in your community is a, a long play, and you have to have a lot of grit and perseverance. But no matter what you go into, Scotty, you got to put your mind to it. You, if you have the passion to do it, then you got to put your mind to it and say, okay, fine, I'm going to prove that I'm the guy to do the job and see it through. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we got a second chance to do this. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, Scotty, I got to thank you for doing this. Although, I, as I said to you earlier, I don't compare it to a lot of the other guys that have done podcasts. Uh, pretty, I've listened to probably all of them. And uh, there's some amazing guys that you've done podcasts on. And, and in fact, the last one I told you about, uh, I really enjoyed listening to him. Uh, he might have been a rough around the edges, but, <laughs> but he was a great guy to listen to, he is, and he's yeah. had a real great life, you know. But I've enjoyed it. I enjoyed my career. I was proud of the uniform till the day I walked out. That's all I have to say. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, son. Thanks a lot. <laughs>